I'm so glad you're with us this morning. We're continuing in our Revelation series that we've been in through the summer and now including this month. And we are moving ahead uh, to the end of John's Revelation and his account. And I'm thinking that I will come back to Revelation at some point to cover uh, the multitude of events that we just did not have time uh, to really dig into and explore together right now. Uh, So for now, uh, we are going to jump to the last couple of chapters in the book, uh, and we're going to start to wrap up this series as it is now. I do, however, want to provide you with at least some summary of the chapters that we are skipping over for now, uh, just to establish some context for what we'll be talking about as we go forward. At the end of Revelation 19, the Battle of Armageddon takes place. I'm sure you've heard something about the Battle of Armageddon. Unfortunately, a lot of times what we hear, uh, particularly about Revelation and the events in it, uh, are, are grossly uh, out of context and inaccurate as the Bible reveals it. But you've probably heard something about the Battle of Armageddon, even if it's way, way over-sensationalized and incorrect. But chapter 19 uh, talks to us about that and, and shows us some of those events surrounding this this battle that is truly the, the last battle, and Satan is bound after that, uh, that battle. Chapter 20 then moves into and covers the millennial kingdom of Jesus on earth, where he literally reigns from Jerusalem as the capital, and all that are in him, all his saints, all of uh, his believers reign alongside of him. Uh, that takes place, uh, and it's recorded in chapter 20. At the end of the chapter, John records the epic failure of Satan and man's final rebellion. Satan is loosed. He tries to bring about one final stand, one final rebellion uh, against Jesus, against the Father, and it fails in epic fashion. All that, all that happens is Jesus just says the word and fire falls down from heaven and consumes uh, all the, the enemies that are gathered there. And Satan and all the demons, as well as the Antichrist and the false prophet, are all thrown into the lake of fire. Right after that, in the same chapter, John takes the reader to the great white throne judgment, where it really is the end of the world as we know it, because the current heavens and the earth are completely done away with right there at that throne. And that's followed by all the unbelieving, unrepentant people of earth receiving their promised judgment and sentencing as they are all thrown into the eternal lake of fire where Satan already is at that point. That's the reality waiting for the wicked, for the unbelieving, for the unrepentant. All who choose to resist and to fail to turn to Christ in repentance for salvation. That's the sad reality that that awaits them. Here's the thing. Everybody lives forever somewhere. Every human being lives forever somewhere. It's either in an eternity full of life and joy and beauty and glory, or it's an eternity in death and in suffering and torment and rebellion and hate. And It is that fact that should motivate every single believer in Christ-like, spirit 
filled love to warn everyone that's outside of Christ about that reality that awaits them. That's the whole reason behind doing something like the way of the master. It's why we're promoting it and, and talking about it so much. Is we need to employ any strategy we can to be better equipped to reach the lost. It's as simple as that. But that's what's happening before where we are going to be today, and that brings us to the passage that we'll be starting today. And as we start this passage, uh, I've titled this message and the other two that come after it, so part one, two, and three, the end is the beginning. The end is the beginning. And the reason I've called it that, the end is the beginning, is because what we're going to look at, what we're talking about, is the end of the enemy, our great enemy, the enemy, Satan, the end of the enemy, the end of mankind's sin, and the end of the universal curse on that sin. They all, all of that, all of that 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 happens up to this point, because where we're going to be is, is after all of those things have come to an end. And the end of all of those things all serve to usher in the beginning of all that God has always planned to be the eternal reality of all that are His. So all of that mess and disaster and chaos and discouragement and darkness, all of which we currently live in and are immersed and saturated by, all of that has come to an end where we're going to be looking at today. But it ushers in the beginning of all that was meant to be and all that we will experience if we are in Christ. So let's look together at that. Let's look together at this great beginning, the beginning that we're all looking forward to that comes on the heels of the ending of all that we wish was already done. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to be today. Revelation 21 Verses 1 through 8. You guys remember the movie, um, early 90s, Disney cartoon, Aladdin? You guys remember that? Who, re- who remembers that? Okay, good, most of you. You guys remember uh, the song that was, it, I mean, all those things were like musicals, but that's okay. You can still find enough to like it, even though that's true, even though it's a musical. And so there's this scene where Aladdin is flying around with Princess Jasmine on the flying carpet, and there's a really famous song that they sang in there. Do you remember the name of the song? Wow, that's, that's scary, actually. So um, moving right along, um, yes, you are right, correct, ding, ding, a whole new world. That's exactly what John, the Apostle John, the recorder of the Revelation, that's what he sees. He sees a whole new world stretching out before him. Verse 1, He says this, then, so after all those things and more that I quickly summarized for you, they've they've all transpired, he's seen all that, he says this now, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This, by the way, is completely new. This is not like renovation, taking the, the current heavens and the current earth and just adding on to them, remodeling as it were. Uh, recycling. That's not what this is at all. This is a completely new, fresh thing. A whole new world, literally. Whole new heavens. And heavens uh, refers to 
what we think of as the sky and, and like the atmosphere and space, that, the heavens, that's what we mean by that. Uh, we don't, John isn't saying that uh, God's dwelling place, you know, his throne room and all of that is made new. It doesn't need to be made new. It's already perfect. What he's talking about is, is uh, what we look up and see and what we are on, okay? Um, completely new, just as new as in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Had never been done before, right? That's what this is. It's all new, brand new. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's what took place at the great white throne judgment. The heavens and the earth, uh, John 20 tells us, fled away from the presence of the Lord, the one that was seated on the throne, completely gone, prophesied, promised. Jesus himself said that was going to happen. And I, I have to think that as, as John is seeing this vision, as he's writing it down, I just see his mind going back to when he heard his Savior at the time, his rabbi on earth in Jesus' earthly ministry before the cross, when Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And I just see his mind going back to that and remembering that promise. And now he's seeing the fulfillment of that promise, and he's probably thinking about the prophecies of Ezekiel and, and all these other times where God prophesied and let everybody know there will be a day where all this goes away. And that's what he witnesses. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? A very specific detail there. The sea was no more. Why? Why would that possibly be? Well, the sea separates. The sea separates. It represents barriers and division. I mean, look at a map. All the continents, all the, all the people on earth are separated by the bodies of water, right? It's always been that way. And so the sea represents barrier, division, separation. And especially in John's day, it represented the unknown, the unpredictable, and the dangerous, None of that will be part of the new perfect world or a part of what the people of God experience. And if this is literal, this statement that the sea was gone, if that's literal, and there, there's not really any clear or strong reason why we shouldn't take that literally, then if that's the case, honestly, I really don't like the sound of that. Just, just being honest. You know, there's all kinds of things in Scripture that you read and you don't like the sound of it. It doesn't mean that it, it's any uh, less accurate or that we should take it uh, any less seriously or submit to it any less just because we don't like it. That's not what we do. Uh, we may not like it, but we accept it. We believe it. We trust it, right? And this part, I mean, if, if the sea is literally no more, Humanly, right now, on this side of eternity, I really, really don't like that because I love the sea. I mean, I really, really love it. Few things in life make me as happy as I am when I'm by the sea or the ocean. Very few things make me as happy as when I'm there. But as sad as this sounds to most of us, because I think most of you would agree with what I said about your happy place being by the sea, 
we have to believe, we have to believe that whatever God has planned for us, it will be the absolute best. The absolute best. Because what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.9 is always true in every circumstance, every situation. He said, I has not seen nor ear heard the wonderful things that God has prepared for those who love him. We've got to believe that's always true, no matter what. So John sees this, sees the, the new heavens, the, the new earth, which for all intents and purposes look to be absent of the sea, and he sees all of these things unfolding, and he just sees one thing building upon another. Look at verse 2. It says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Isn't it great that we have a God that brings heaven to us? And that's what he does. That's what the gospel shows us, that he doesn't somehow wait for us to be fit for heaven. No, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he brought heaven to us and he through Jesus, makes us fit for heaven. John here sees a literal new Jerusalem, a perfect holy city, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Isn't that a beautiful image? You know, um, as a pastor, and, and any pastor who's done weddings agree with me on this, I mean, Matthew, Scott, and, and anyone else, even outside of, of our church here, uh, one of the most favorite moments that we have as pastors is when, even after the rehearsal, I mean, the rehearsal just doesn't do it justice, but on the, the day of the wedding, when we're standing up here with the groom, and he's shaking, about to pass out, And then the doors open, and that music sounds, and there's his bride. And what I like to do, Matthew does the same thing, Scott, we like to look at the groom in that moment, because his face just lights up, and more often than not, no matter how manly they might be, tears start coming down their face, and nothing else that has happened up to the point of the wedding day, all that stress, all that pressure which is on the bride, let's just be honest, the groom does nothing. But all of that doesn't matter. It's all a memory at that point. All they see is their beautiful bride. And that's the scene here. That John looks at this perfect, glorious New Jerusalem coming down, and it's just like seeing a bride adorned for her husband. It's a beautiful picture. And what that, what that shows us and, and teaches us, this coming of New Jerusalem and all that's contained in that, is very, very good news for me, and I think you'll find it good news too. That's this. Heaven, our, our future eternal existence and our reality, heaven will be on a restored earth, not a celestial resort. We're not going to be just up there somewhere, um, floating on clouds, you know, strumming harps and, 
and just in this ethereal, mystical type existence. No, heaven is going to be on earth. A restored, perfect earth. This was God's plan from the beginning. I mean, we see that at the beginning of, of the Bible in, his, in human history. Eden, it was supposed to be what we think of, all that we think of as, as heaven and, and found in heaven. It was always supposed to be on earth. Always. But sin messed all that up. And so what we have is a complete restoration and a complete fulfillment of God's perfect plan. A physical real, literal heaven on earth. And ever since Eden, when all that got messed up, humanity has always tried to create heaven on earth. Always have tried to do that. I mean, you see that before the flood, with all the people of the world Um, trying to do something that only God could do, and they rejected all of his, His plan, His order, all of that. And, I mean, it went to disaster. Every intention of the imagination of the heart of man was only evil continually. And God said, I, man, I, I wish I had not even made them. You know, and, and it was, it was their disastrous plan to try to make heaven for themselves. I mean, we look at the, uh, look at the Tower of Babel. Same thing. They tried to do their own work to reach heaven and, and to make everything perfect. They applied every, all their intelligence to that, all their skills, and it was all a vain, selfish, prideful, sinful endeavor. It's what mankind always has tried to do, always tried to create heaven on earth. That's what um, Hitler and the Nazis tried to do. They tried to make the perfect society. Look at what they did to try to achieve that. So man always, always tries to create heaven on earth, but it always ends up resembling hell on earth much more than it does heaven. But at the restoration of all things, at the renewal of all things, we'll finally have heaven on earth. Won't that be great? In the first creation... God put his people in a perfect garden that they corrupted by their sin, and the rest is very much history. In the new creation, God will put his people in a perfect city they won't be able to corrupt. We won't be able to corrupt it. I mean, we won't be able to sin. Isn't that great news? That, oh my, that, that is what I'm really really looking forward to. I mean, I'm looking forward to everything else that's going to be part of our eternal existence, but I don't think I'm going to be looking forward to anything quite as much as not having the ability to sin anymore. (laughs) Aren't you tired of not just sin, but aren't you tired of being able to choose sin so easily? I mean, if you've walked with Christ any length of time at all, and you know the Word, even just a little bit, you see how great He is. You see how amazing God's grace is. 
You see all that He has done for you and all He continues to do for you. And yet, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how much you do truly love your Savior, no matter how much you believe the Word, any of us, every one of us, can still and does still choose sin like that. Just easy. Simple. We just, I mean, we, it doesn't take anything at all for us to still give ourselves over to the sin that caused our Savior to go to the cross for that sin. We, we look at God and all He is. We look at His beauty and His glory and His majesty, and we still then look at the hideousness and the darkness and the, the putrid nature of our sin, and we still say, yeah, I think I'll go that way. I think I'll choose that. But there will come a day, believer, where you will no longer even have that choice in front of you. You won't even, you won't even be able to choose it. You won't have any appetite at all left in you for sin. That's what I'm looking forward to. Why? Because He, our God, makes all things new. That's why. That's how we'll be able to do that. Let's look at verses 3 through 5 of this chapter, Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. And we've, we've seen now a whole new world. We're going to look now at a whole new relationship, a new relationship. Verse 3, John says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Hallelujah! Everyone, every believer, everyone in Christ will personally, in the the new creation, in the the restoration of all things, the the great renewal, everyone will personally perfectly experience Emmanuel. You know, Emmanuel means God with us, and we, we focus in on that at Christmas time, and we sing those songs about Emmanuel, right? But God, in the person of Jesus, is always Emmanuel. The thing about that, though, is we're still, in some ways, separated from experiencing that to the fullest experiencing that perfectly, because we're still in this limited, finite, sin-soaked skin. So we can't perfectly or fully experience Emmanuel yet. But at this point, at this future reality and our future history, because when we're there, it will be just this ongoing history that never ends, we will be able to personally, perfectly experience Emmanuel God with us in a way that no one has has been able to experience up to this point. God Himself will be with them. They will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. It's, It's like what Moses yearned for when he said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said to Moses, you can't look on my face because no one can look on my face and live. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you and put you in this crevice in the rock, and I'm going to cover you with one hand, 
and I'm going to let my glory, all of my goodness, all of my glory, everything I am will pass by you. And as I pass by you, I'll remove my hand so you can see my back, but you cannot see my face yet, Moses. I love you too much. But when this happens, there will be no need to be put in a crevice. We'll get to see the fullness, the full power, the full weight of the glory of God without any fear, without any separation needed. Won't that be incredible? And Christian, when all is made new, we will see all we got wrong about Jesus, for we will see him as he is. John writes that in his first epistle. And when we do, when we see Jesus as he is, when we realize all that we get wrong and assume about Jesus, we will never be more happy to have been wrong. Verse 4, let's move on to that. So we've seen a whole new world, a whole new relationship, and now in verses 4 and 5, we're going to see a new reality, a new reality. See, this just keeps getting better and better as we go forward. John just keeps seeing something better after another in this this vision, this rapid succession of all the restoration of of all things. Verse 4, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief crying, and pain, all of which are connected to or are a result of death, right, will be no more. Why? Because the previous things have passed away. Oh, what a day that will be. So many of you have had lots of tears on your faces these past months. These past weeks, past years, a lot of us have had cheeks that are soaked with tears. You've all had moments and experiences day after day, week after week. A lot of you recently where it feels like all you've done is cry. And we all know what it is to be faced with death and the grief that comes from that, even under the best of circumstances. The fact that it's never easy to say so long to a loved one. We're all familiar with the pain associated with loss. But on that day, Our God, who is very much familiar with grief, will touch your face, believer. And whether it's tears of thinking back over all that you did lose in this life, or whether it's tears at seeing your loved one that you're reunited with, or whether it's tears of joy at seeing all that you see as you're there in this eternal state, it doesn't say 
why there will still be crying, but, but there will apparently be tears in heaven. And God is going to look at you, though, at that time, at that moment, and He's going to touch your cheek. And the fingers that made the universe are going to touch your cheek and take your tears away. And He's going to say, you don't need those anymore. You don't need those anymore. What a day that will be. Verse 5. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, look, I am making everything new. And that is always what he does, right? That's always what our God does. He's always the God of the new. And the really good news for us is we don't have to wait completely for this time, for this, this date, to experience the newness that our God brings about. If you are here and, and you're not in Christ yet, you've never surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, now is a chance before you. I mean, this moment, right now, you have the ability before you to experience the new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. All things are become new. So you don't have to wait for this. This far-off future reality that may not be that far off. I mean, that'd be really great if, if it all was ushered in today. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't that be great? But you don't have to wait for this reality And believer, you don't have to wait for this reality for yourself I mean, after you've come to Christ. Because God, through the work of the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying ministry in your life, He wants to make you and me new every moment of every day. And we have that ability because of the Spirit of God, whom we received from Christ, to experience and walk in newness of life every single day. So no matter what you have been, no matter what you have done, no matter what weight you are carrying with you as you came into this place today, you don't have to stay under it because your God is the God of the new. And at this point, in reality, He makes everything new. And then He says this to John. He also said, Write. Like, like, keep writing, John. Don't stop now. I just see John, like, awestruck and just not able to move, and just mouth open and, at, at all he's seeing, and he forgets that he's supposed to be taking all this down. So, you know, God says, write. Write, write this too. Because these words are faithful and true, just like the rest of God's Word. There is not one aspect, not even the smallest detail of the Word of God that is not faithful and true. That's why we need to know His Word, love His Word, share His Word, proclaim His Word, because it is the only thing that we have here now in front of us that will last for eternity. My words will never pass away. Remember? Verses 6 through 8 show us, especially verses 6 and 7, Show us a promise kept. So let's look at that. Verse 6. Then he said to me, It is 
done. It's done. All that I've planned, all that I've purposed, all of it, it's accomplished, it's fulfilled, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life, just like Jesus promised to the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember he said, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you and asking you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And She said, sir, give me this water. And he did. He did. And all the rest of the town experienced that too. This is the promise that Jesus always made and always offers to everybody that comes to him, living water that never runs dry, spring of the water of life. Verse 7 says this, The one who conquers will inherit these things. All of the glories that John is seeing, all of the newness of everything, the restoration and renewal of all things, perfection, no, no ability to sin anymore, The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And that extends to you women as well, daughters, sons and daughters of God is what's meant here. And this is what Jesus promised again and again, not just in his earthly life and his ministry, but in this book, in this revelation. I mean, specifically, think back to the letters to the churches that we spent time in, those seven letters to the seven churches promised again and again, the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, I will give these things, right? So it's it's a promise kept in that way, but, but all that we've read in these verses was promised a long time before John's revelation. Centuries before, actually. Let me just have you listen to Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19. Centuries, about eight centuries before John saw this revelation, Here's what Isaiah saw, what he was promised, what he prophesied from God. God said to him all those centuries before this. The word of the Lord to Isaiah. For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. Now, eight centuries after that promise, John sees the same thing happening. That shows us that God, our God, is a promise-keeping God. A perfect promise-keeping God. More than anyone else ever can be or will be. And if we can trust God to bring this about, that means we can trust Him for everything else. After that, in verse 8, John saw, and we see through his recording of these things, a sad contrast. This is a, a, a contrast point. After everything he just saw to what he sees in this statement, 
Very sad contrast, but a necessary justice. A necessary justice. Verse 8, but the cowards, the faithless, those that refuse to acknowledge the lordship and the salvation that's found in Jesus, the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. This entire list points to the unrepentant and the unbelieving that die in that unrepentance and unbelief. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which Satan and the Antichrist and the demons were all thrown into. Their share will be in that as well, which is the second death or the eternal death. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Magician's Nephew, All get what they want. They do not always like it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. That's the sad truth which we've seen play out throughout history. And chances are many of you have personally experienced at some point in your life how true that is. That what you really want may not be what you need, and when you get it, you may not really like it. I mean, we've, we've had that experience, right? How true that is. And that is sadly going to be the fate for those who refuse to turn to Christ. I want to leave you with another C.S. Lewis quote that is equally true, but a lot more uplifting and encouraging than that quote. At the end of the last battle, the main characters of the Narnia series die, and they find themselves in Aslan's country, which is, in the books, heaven. And this is how Lewis described their experience there. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Hallelujah. If you're in Christ now, if you're in Christ now, that's going to be your story then. That's the reality that awaits us, believer. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great word. I thank you for your, for your goodness in revealing these things to us through your servant, John, that we can really, in, in a way, we can be right there with him as he sees the, these incredible visions. It's something only you can do through the the power of Your Word, through the work of Your Holy Spirit who illuminates the text for us. And we can see through John's eyes, in a way, what he saw. Thank You for preserving Your Word for us. I pray, Father, that those of us who are already in Christ, who have Your Spirit, would be awakened and, and rejuvenated as we reflect on what we read today, 
at the reality that awaits us, not by anything we have done or deserve, all because of your grace and because of your Son, Jesus. Please let this serve to ignite a fire again within us and and let that fire result in a a praise to you that, that is contagious. But Father, I also pray that for anyone that was here right now today, as this great revelation was looked at, and as they saw what will await as just a just as much of a certain reality for the unbeliever as the reality will be for the believer. As they saw that, as they heard that, the reality that awaits the unrepentant, the unregenerated. May your Spirit use that to convict them of their absolute urgent, urgent need for the Savior. May you use the warning that this was to all those who will never experience the glory of heaven unless they turn to Christ, use that to to draw their heart by your Spirit to your Son. And let today be the day that they step into the new, that they experience what it is to have newness of life. And may all of us yield to the sanctifying work of your Spirit that we may walk constantly in the newness of life until you bring us into this permanent reality of the new and the restored. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.